0: Hello and welcome to Navigate. I'm your host, Roger Cook, and today is the first part of a two-part series titled Mile High Medicine. Today we are joined by the Managing Director and Chief Medical Advisor for Flight Care Global, Dr. Simon May. Flight Care Global provide a range of products to help manage medical events, pre-flight, in-flight, and on the ground. Their approach is both innovative, technology-based, and cost-effective the team able to provide a high level of medical operational and account management experience and knowledge to support their clients wherever they are in the world joining dr may we have world travel protection's very own dr neil Slabbert. neil is the regional chief medical officer for the uh, apac region for world travel protection and he's an emergency physician and senior staff specialist in emergency medicine in queensland and had and holds an honorary contract with the Royal London Hospital and London's Air Ambulance. He has contributed to International Morty Centre randomized controlled trials in pre-hospital and emergency medicine and continues to pass on his wealth of knowledge and expertise as a teacher and trainer. And today we're going to explore what happens when something goes wrong in the air. On a commercial flight, what's the responsibility of the air crew? What support mechanisms do they have? And what happens when someone is sick? Uh, Dr. May, let's start with you. When we talk about the flight crew and and the training that they receive from a medical perspective, how, how thorough is it and what sort of training would we expect um, our air crews to have? The training different between
1: countries, but generally, um, you, you know, there's some basic competencies that all air crews should have. So, you know, whatever airline you're going, whatever country they're from, the crew will be trained in how to do CPR. The crew, the crew will be trained in how to manage a burn or a scold. Um, and the crew will be very used to dealing with passengers who faint. Um, of course, we've got to remember that these are not medically medical people. They're um, primarily there for our safety and service. Generally, cabin crew, um, as part of their regulated training, have actually fairly extensive aviation first aid training. Uh, and the longer they've been doing the job, the more... Um, the more medical incidents they see on board and the better they get at it. Um, If you put it into perspective, probably around one in every 40 flights um, has a medical incident on board. That's Australian data. Um, And about one in 150 flights, you could classify that as a medical emergency. So throughout a cabin crew's career, not only will they go their initial training, their recurrent training, which generally happens annually, uh, but they'll also see uh, events out on the line and become comfortable managing the the sick passenger. Um, There are other tools that they have to help them, such as ground-based medical assistance, and potentially the oldest are a doctor on board, or what we call medically qualified volunteers. Um, But generally, um, cabin crew are actually pretty good at at managing the sick passenger. But also, in in companies that use ground-based medical support, importantly, how to communicate with ground-based medical support uh, to get get the best out of that communication.
0: Neil, one for you. What would be the most Common incident that the air crew would have to contend with uh, whilst they're in the air.
2: Most of their incidents, in fact, thirty-five percent were in passengers that were over fifty-five years old. The common incidents internationally that are seen are syncope or near syncope, um, which means a near faint or a fainting episode or a collapse or near collapse, and that's seen in approximately 35% of of passengers. Then each roughly 10% are respiratory complications, nausea and vomiting or gastrointestinal upset, and then any cardiovascular complaints such as discomfort on on the chest. Um, And following that, five to 6% are seizures on board an aircraft
0: obviously treating somebody who's unwell on board the, the primary consideration would be for, for their well-being but this, this the aircraft still has a, a has a flight path it has a destination and there's a, there's a requirement for to get for it to get there so that this that must be a consideration when uh, aircrew are required to support you know, someone who's unwell
1: yeah look there's no such thing as cheap diversion even um you know um an extra landing fee and a bit of extra fuel will m- mount to the thousands um you know, big international diversions, wide body aircraft uh, with, you know, 300 plus passengers on, some of whom then miss the connections, um, they can run into hundreds of thousands of, of dollars, US dollars in cost.
0: When a medical incident occurs in the air, clearly the, the, the first you know, concern really is for the person who's unwell, but it does place a lot of pressure on the air crew to make sure they make the right decision.
1: It does, and, and, and generally uh, the, the crew will be good at you, you know managing the whole incident uh, as as a whole. Um, the other thing to think about is this ground-based medical support. So having somebody who's objective on the ground, um, who's experienced in this um, field, providing um, advice and decision support to the crew uh, to get the best outcome, not only for the passenger or patient on board, but also for the operation as well.
0: You talked about the ground-based medical support, and that's that's really where Flight Care Global come into it. And how how do you support the aircrew uh, through through that through through your organisation?
1: So, um, what we've developed is we've developed an end-to-end um, technology platform. So, what we do is we use technology to bring the um, expert clinician to the aircraft. So we have a um a user interface um which which is a, an application which can be used either in the cabin or in the flight deck, um generally over Wi-Fi, but the, the system will also work with a standard SATCOM um voice call. Um and what that does is it basically takes um some basic information about the flight, the flight's position, the flight's uh Duration, so how long's left in the flight, and also some basic demographic and symptom information about the passenger, and that is transmitted directly into our case management system, which we call our command center, uh, which is which is our rear end system where our where our clinicians work on the cases, and basically we have direct communication between that command center and the aircraft uh, through our technology, and we also feed in a lot of the operational information. So you know th- this is. A small part medicine and a, and a big part of understanding the operations that you're supporting.
0: You know, we, we've ascertained that the uh, the aircrew are appropriately trained, they're appropriately equipped, and they've got ground based medical support. Uh, and yet, we still have been on. I, I've been on aircraft where I've heard, you know, over the PA system, "Is there a doctor on board?" This seems to be a normal operating procedure, but it's not without its complexities.
1: So there's generally most flights I'd say have somebody either a doctor, a nurse, paramedic, something like that on board. So um the airlines that I've worked for in the past, in excess of eighty or ninety percent even, have had somebody on board who, who could render assistance. Of course, the problem's is twofold. Uh, the problem is, um, you know, the background of the medically qualified volunteer, um, you know, involved in the case. So it could be a, a psychiatrist rather than an emergency physician or a general practitioner. Um, and also there's the competing interests. So, you know, um, they may be very uncomfortable in the situation with a sick passenger on board an aircraft and just want to get that air- aircraft on the ground as soon as possible to resolve any or absolve any responsibility. And the second thing is also they may want to get to their destination as well, so there may be that competing interest of actually I need to get where I'm going to get to dinner or to get to my conference. Um, So, you you know, there's all those competing interests with with the medically qualified volunteer.
0: Neil, as as a medical professional, what are some of the things that you would consider if you heard the, you know, is there a doctor on board uh, over the PA? There's a few
2: considerations. I think one of the most important considerations is, when the call is made, one, it's an unfamiliar environment, two, you don't know who you're actually seeing, whether it's an adult or a child, and depending if you're a medical specialist or not and what field you're in, it may be something that you're uncomfortable with or it's outside your field of speciality. The other consideration is medico legal consequences around providing assistance, Fortunately, there are there the acts to encourage you to provide medical assistance. There's a commonly known Good Samaritan Act, and certainly in Australia, there's legislation to protect you should you have provided medical assistance. In the US, they put something similar called the Aviation Medical Assistance Act, Um, It also actually interestingly depends on what the flag right of the aircraft, so where the aircraft is registered. Interestingly, in the EU, there is a requirement as a medical professional to provide medical assistance. The reassuring thing is that most modern aircraft have now got Wi-Fi on board and all international, all airlines will have some sort of subscription to ground-based medical support. So in conjunction with ground-based medical support, in conjunction with potential Wi-Fi on an aircraft where things like an ECG can be WhatsApp to ground medical support, um, the correct help and the correct medical decisions can be made.
0: So when the medical volunteer on board does stand up and and Provide assistance. What sort of equipment do they have to work with?
1: Yeah, so many aircraft, uh, and in some countries it's regulated, will have something called an emergency medical kit. Um, uh, It's not regulated in every country. For example, in Australia, it's not compulsory that you carry um, this medical kit on board. But that will often have things like um, passenger assessment equipment, so blood pressure, temperature, maybe even blood oxygen level equipment on uh, in there, and also some um, some basic treatments that can be used either by the crew on the instructions of ground-based medical support or by a medically qualified volunteer on board the aircraft. Now, the best way of using a medically qualified volunteer on board the aircraft, and uh, we mentioned these medically qualified volunteers a bit earlier, is actually in conjunction with the ground-based medical support provider. So what we do is we have the ground-based medical support provider Managing the case and making the decisions, and the medically qualified volunteer on board the aircraft being their eyes, ears, and hands. Say, for example, if for example a passenger might need an injection, that's something that the cabin crew probably wouldn't be trained to do and probably shouldn't be doing. But if there's a medically qualified volunteer on board who can give an injection that's prescribed by the ground-based medical support, then that's when things you
2: know go really well.
0: And what would happen in the instance if the the medical trained volunteer recommended that the aircraft be diverted?
2: I think the important thing to realise with with a diversion is the overall decision lies not with the medical practitioner but with the captain of the aircraft. And this while the medical practitioner might be familiar with the route they're flying or the area they're overflying it might be that the nearest airport isn't an airport that's able to support the aircraft. aircraft. Um, just for example, I know with Airbus a- A380s, their runway needs to be a certain length and a certain width. So it might, the aircraft might not be able to land at the most suitable airport. The other consideration the captain would have to make is the welfare of the other sort of passengers on board. And of course, any. Diversion is a really, really costly exercise.
0: Have you ever been in this position, Simon, where you know the, the calls come over the, the PA for a medical professional, and you've had to respond?
1: Yeah, quite a few times. Um, I generally find that the best cure for that is a pair of earplugs. But um, you know, having <laughs> spent a number of years working for airlines, and sometimes the crew know who you are, so um, they would often tap me on the shoulder before they'd call our ground-based medical support provider. Um, so you know, I've um, been on a couple of flights in the last three years, even where I've actually seen some fairly sick passenger, and it's just a function of the fact that I was actually travelling quite a lot, and you know, these things happen. Mm. As we say, one in every 40 flights as such, you know, more people are flying uh, as air travel becomes accessible to the masses. Um, people are traveling at older age. Uh, people are traveling with more controlled, complex medical conditions. And really importantly, as well, is people are traveling for medical treatment. Um, so people may travel for surgery that they can't get in their own country um, and, and they, they can be quite unwell. And if they don't tell the airline and the airline doesn't risk manage that, then these are the ones that can tend to get quite well on board the aircraft.
0: Neil, is, is there a role for the airlines here? Is there a role that they can play in, in making sure that you know, they support traveller health? The
2: airlines minimise the risk by following what are called the IATA, International Air Travellers Association Medical Guidelines. And... This is a comprehensive document which has a list of varying medical conditions where if you have suffered one of those recently, either you are going to be not fit to fly or if after a certain period of time you may be fit to fly but you need a medical clearance from the treating practitioner who's been looking after you. To certify that you are fit to fly and you are healthy to actually undertake the flight.
0: And what about the traveller? What can can they do to to help support their own health and well-being when they travel?
2: I think it's important to realise that long-haul flights or intercontinental flights have become longer and longer. A few years ago, the longest intercontinental or long-haul flight was 12 to 13 hours. Some of the flights are now 16 to 17 hours. Probably the most important thing is if you have got underlying medical conditions and you're on medication, is to be aware of what the change in time zone can be just for having your medication. It can become hard when some of the medication you need to take morning, lunch and night. So be aware of the times you need to have them. And then all the other things that you'd normally uh have on a long haul flight i e make sure you minimize your alcohol intake drink enough fluids and probably importantly you know mustn't just remain in your seat try
0: and move around if you can as as we start to open up and, and travel more you know obviously it's been a while since uh, many people have traveled particularly in this part of the world and getting back into long haul flights is you know, going to take some effort. But what about those people who are nervous flyers? You know, the you know prior to the to the pandemic, they were probably already a little bit concerned about flying. They, they didn't like being in the air. They didn't like the process. They didn't like being you know in a in a, a steel tube with um, a few hundred strangers. H- how do airlines support and manage those people?
1: Yeah, look, um, often ground support um, are good at teasing out the anxious flyer and, you know, many people in their um, emergency medical kits will carry anxiolytic medicines to to, to assist. So, I've seen a number of times, you know, somebody start with a symptom such as shortness of breath or chest pain and and, and on further questioning, it's come down to the fact that it's probably actually uh, an anxious passenger. And then, you know, we actually do have stuff that can assist um, with the anxious passenger on board. The real cure for the um, the fear of flying and the anxious passenger, of course, is, is dealing with it before the flight and, you, you know, confronting those fears. And there's actually programs in a number of airlines out there um, that are offered to anxious flyers um, to, to kind of desensitize them, if you like. Um, and, and they're really good programs. Um, one of the things we expect to see um, an increase in health related risk as the as the. Um, industry recovers from the pandemic and one of the things towards the top of my list of things that we're going to see is is more anxious players i think
0: yeah absolutely agree and i think you know obviously as we step back out you know the the travelers not sure what's you know if the country's going to be like when they arrive given the covid you know what are they going to meet when they get there is it just purely the lack of flying and 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 the lack of opportunity to experience of, of late
1: Yeah, I think a mixture of all all three, you know, the context that you're going overseas, um, you've not been overseas for a while, the world's changed. And also, you've not, you know, you might have been a bit of a nervous flyer before, but you've not been on an aeroplane for a couple of years. And now you're on an aeroplane wearing a face mask, going out to a new world. So, you know, we we see that, um, you know, flight-related anxiety is is one of the things at the top of the list that we're going to see as we kind of come out of the pandemic.
0: It is definitely going to be a... a different flying experience from what people are used to and how do you think the industry is managing this return to travel are they doing anything differently
1: yeah look i think it you know a lot of it depends on you know what's actually going on in the country where the airline is based Um, You know, there really is no international consistency around how people are managing borders, how people are managing travel. Um, So, you know, we see some airlines who've been flying throughout the pandemic, who may be actually a little bit further towards normalcy than uh, those that are just regaining flying because they've got very used to it. Um, You know, all, all the crew were vaccinated early and they're really, you know, finding their new normal. Whereas we've had airlines that have been grounded for months on end. Who are now, uh, you know, just coming back to flying, and um, you know, just finding their way.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's definitely a multi-speed recovery for the aviation sector. Uh, what what do you see as being the biggest challenge for for the airlines in supporting health and wellbeing for travellers in, in in the next six months?
1: Yeah, look, I think the, the the first thing is um, you know being aware of non-COVID health risks. So you know everyone's going to be aware of COVID tests, COVID vaccinations at check-in. But like I said, there's a lot of pent-up demand from the determined traveller out there. So you know you will get people that want to travel to have their significant surgery. You'll get people that want to travel to uh visit um you know friends and family overseas uh who are actually sick. Um so the first thing is remembering those red flags um and also promoting to the um the the broader passenger base that if you've got a medical condition, it's not necessarily a bar to your travelling, but Please do let your carrier know so a risk assessment can be done and, and anything that can be done to facilitate your travel can be uh, can be facilitated.
0: Some terrific insights there from our industry experts. I'd like to thank Dr. Simon May and Dr. Neil Slabit for their contribution to today's episode. And please uh, like, subscribe and follow the Navigate podcast. Keep an eye out for the second of this series. That was Mile High Medicine brought to you by World Travel Protection.